I need to be in the right physiological and emotional state before I make my decision. So therefore, the most important thing I can teach people is a timeout. And, you know, the idea that if I'm not in the right physiological state, if I'm not in the right emotional state, I call a timeout. Hi, welcome to the Tarun Stevenson Leadership Channel. I'm your host, Tarun Stevenson, and we are all about helping you lead, communicate, and grow to your full potential. Whether you're tuning in on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or your favorite podcasting app, don't forget to subscribe and follow so that you can stay up to date with all our latest episodes. All right, here's the latest episode. Let's get into it. Hey, everybody, Tarun Stevenson here, and I'm here with Carl Massey. It's great to have him on this show. He is a strategist and author and coach and today we're going to be talking about decision making and how you can become a co-author in your own destiny welcome to the show Carl thank you very much and I just got a warning to people I'm in Bali at the moment there may be a torrential downpour happening and a lot of noise at some point so all right just be- good so so the rumblings we know are not your stomach it's the thunder <laughs> outside All right. Awesome. Well, it's great to have you, Carl. And uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? You've had a fascinating uh, lead up to where you are now. You told me a little bit about it before we got on the show. Yep. Uh, So why don't you, for the listeners, give us a bit of background. So I can do the chronological thing. So 14 years in the army, five years consulting to mega events around the world, Bali the last 13 and a half years, coaching, writing books, running seminars and that sort of stuff. But I guess for me, my origin story is I won't go through the bad breakup that caused me to decide I wanted to get on the other side of the planet from this person. And, uh, and it was while I was on the other side of the planet, I was in the military at the time and I'd taken a year's leave without pay. So I was about nine years into the military, a captain in the Australian Army. And I took myself overseas and one of the things I realised once I separated myself from the known and familiar, whether that was the institution I worked for, the military at that time, my family, once I moved overseas, it sort of took a weight off my shoulders and allowed me to fully understand who I was, what I believed in and that sort of stuff, as opposed to imprinting by family and institution. And it was in that time that I started to realise the impact of beliefs and beliefs that have, you know, societal beliefs, institutional beliefs, familial beliefs, and that sort of thing. So I came back from that year experience, and, um, you know, most people didn't expect me to come back and, you know, return to the army, but I came back with a mission to finish a degree. I busted my knee up playing rugby in the military, but I sort of did a total job on my knee in Lake Louise skiing in, uh, in Canada. And I had some debts to pay off. So I decided to come back. And while I came back, there was a part of me that felt like, you know, I was being uncourageous, not stepping out into the world and coming back to the security blanket of the, of the army. So there was, you know, a bit of an inner war going on and sort of I wasn't that appreciative of the person that I was seeing reflected back to me in the mirror. So and a lot of times when that happens, we distract ourselves, numb ourselves out and, you know, I was hitting the bottle pretty hard in the military. This is, you know, back in the sort of late 90s, conducive place in the officer's mess for, you know, getting heavily on the booze. I remember having this bender of a weekend and I sort of 
woke up in the middle of the night. It's about you know, 2 a.m. in the morning. And this is back in 1999. I put the television on, which is something I wouldn't normally do. And there's this infomercial going. And there's this big six foot seven guy with a face full of teeth, Tony Robbins. And he was firing from the hip, selling his 30-day program. So, you know, back in the day, I've jumped on the phone to order his program, you know, rang it up, spoke to a real person on the other end, got my credit card out, read the numbers off. And I got his 30-day program and I did that Easter 1999. And that for me was a huge course correction. Um, completely changed my life. I sort of went vegetarian, got into yoga and stopped getting drunk. And, um, you know, it took a while for my army buddies to accept me that I didn't have just hadn't just lost the plot or whatever. Mm. As you can imagine, you know, a bunch of army mates, I'd go along to a barbecue and, um, and I'd have some soda waters or some light beers. I'd have some eggplant and zucchini to grill up on the barbecue. Mm. My mates would tell me to piss off and come back with five kilograms of steak and a case of beers. So I, I had to weather that out for about three months. But, you know, that was the turning point in my life. And the other thing I did was I started realising that I wanted to get a real education. And that real education was I started reading. And, you know, since that time, since Easter 1999, I've read hundreds and hundreds of books, whether it's, you know, all different forms and formats of psychology, whether it's neuroscience, epigenetics, mm. a lot of stuff, stuff in the health space and, you know, pretty broad spectrum. So that's, um, you know, really given me, you know, this knowledge base and then from there you know you know the hero's journey I, I wanted to teach other people what i was drawing from these as i put the pieces together so i came up with a plan to write you know five books in 10 years so that was the goal i wanted to write about happiness first then it was health then it was success and then i sort of ended up writing a book on on the mind, sort of the successful mind, the integration and relationship between conscious and subconscious. Mm. And then the last book was on decision-making as, as a coach, and I've been coaching now for about 13 plus years. Um, you know, I just see so many poor decisions leading to where people end up. Yeah. That could have, you know, if we reverse engineered it, if there was a better decision-making process for someone to go, you know, there'd be a different outcome. So. That's it in a nutshell. And mm. um, the rain has started. Is that, you know, sort of. No, I can't hear it. So it's working okay. out okay, I think. <laughs> okay. Well, that, thank you for sharing that story because um, it's a fascinating story. I want to just, we're going to get into your latest book, Decision Making Mastery. Before I do, I just want to pick apart some of your story there. You said that after you busted your knee on Lake Louise, that uh, you weren't liking what you saw of yourself. And I think the words you used were you didn't feel like you were being courageous. And yeah, that yeah. sounds like, I guess, you're in the military. You know, you're obviously a physically uh, fit person. You're doing things yep. like skiing, you're playing rugby, you're doing yep. all the things that externally would say to everybody, you're a courageous person. Mm. What was it about mm. what you saw that said, no, that, that's not courage, there's something yeah. missing? And the awesome question, because the awesomeness of that was when I came back to the military, I actually had a knee reconstruction. I had a phenomenal surgeon um, through the military, amazing rehabilitation. And physically, I actually became faster, stronger 
than before I had the accident. So it really wasn't any of this physical thing. It was a deep psychological thing, looking in my heart, thinking I didn't have the courage to step away from the army because at some point I realised I wasn't necessarily into the security thing. I loved people and I loved working with people. So, you know, I could do the security thing, but, you know, that wasn't my that wasn't my jam. My jam was actually working, you know, leading people, mm. you know, helping people to do things that they didn't necessarily want to do and, you know, you know massage uh, that process. So it was feeling that I didn't have the courage to actually continue on after that year's leave without pay mm. and challenge myself out in the big wide world without the security and safety blanket of the military. Because mm. I felt like, you know, I went from a very hierarchical family unit mm. to another hierarchical unit in the military. And I felt like I was just doing the same thing. Mm. Part of me wanted to explore beyond that. Mm. And, you know, then there's the part I'm feeling don't have the courage to step out of my own. So I had this sort of internal battle going on in that mm. sense. So that was the the psychological piece of it, I didn't feel I had the courage to step out on my own to do my own thing. Mm. That's great. So you you talk a lot about uh, the security of, or the, I guess, the backup of the army and how that sort of, you were able to take a year off because you knew you could go back to the army. And part That's of right. my story is I've, I've always found that I, I don't find my next step until I've cut off the security of my previous step. And, and that's true for a lot of people. Talk to us about the process of when you first got to that place where you made the break. Uh, you've watched mm. this Tony Robbins uh, yep. infomercial. You've bought the course. Uh, what were yep. the steps that you took to actually break that umbilical cord from the army? And then how did you move into the next phase of your life? Yeah, cool. Um, I, I call myself Australia. There's 14 years in the army and then five years at high level with um, mega events, Olympic Games and that sort of stuff. So I'm, even though I make a choice to do something, I strategically map it out. I say, okay, I need to finish this degree. I need to save up some money. So I had this plan to, and, you know, obviously in Australia, we've got this thing called long service leave. So I built mm. that up. So I put another buffer in. I'm going to finish up. And I was involved with the Sydney Olympics and the security for that. And, a, you know, a beautiful project on that. But I had like eight months of um, pay from long service leave, another couple of months of annual leave. So I had about 11 months of paid vacation before I was actually leaving the military, which mm. gave me that buffer zone. And I sort of took a half step outside of that because what I did is I stepped back into security. So I stepped into working as a consultant, talking about security at Olympic Games. So I was still doing what I did in the military, I took all those skills and that sort of stuff. Because when I was, and I went along and saw Tony Robbins on stage and I said, I want to be doing that coaching thing. You know, mm. not the same as him. I'm five foot four, he's six foot seven. <laughs> so there's a bit of a different thing there. But I said, that's, that's what I want to do. So I transitioned into this consulting space. But part of that, again, was I wanted to have the travel experience and I wanted to cash up to give myself another buffer again when I make this final transition. Yeah. So, you know, I, I make transitions, but I am about how can I set it up so it can be more easeful and graceful. 
Great. Now, as you know, we come up with our best plans and, you know, they're our best plans. Life has different ideas. So, yeah. you know, I had my big financial buffer, then global financial crisis comes along mm. after I just invested a whole lot of that. And, you know, it, it wiped out a whole chunk of that. So my, you know, my big stepping stone, you know, become a lot more of a smaller stepping stone. And what I found is sometimes we need to be on the edge a little bit to kick our own ass to like get mm. ourselves in the game. Because if we got too big a buffer, you know, then you come to Bali, low cost of living. I could have sat around for five years doing nothing. Yeah. And, you know, that dream sort of filters out. So life is like, oh, I can see you getting too lazy, sitting on your butt there, sipping coconuts under, <laughs> under trees or whatever. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take your like little cash buffer. I'm yes. just going to throw that away. And now I'm going to put you back in the game. So I had that tumultuous experience of, oh, shit, I actually need to, you know, do something. I've worked for the man for 20 years. Mm. And now I actually need to do something. You know, and I have a lot of clients and I love working with people transitioning. And I say mm. the transition from working corporate to by yourself, there's a gap. And the gap is the size of the freaking Grand Canyon. Mm. Like make no mistakes. <laughs> like working for yourself, there's a lot of, you know, benefits in that. But it's in your face. You don't have the resources to support network. So that was the big thing for me was the learning, you know, how to do things on my own. And I just, you know, got put through the ringer um, because I tried to figure it all out myself, which is yeah. pretty daft in hindsight. Okay. So let's, uh, let's walk through some of the lessons that you gleaned from that experience and how you managed to walk yourself out of it and uh, set yourself up in a place where you're making great decisions and, and being, mm. if you like, your words, the co-creator of your destiny. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, a lot of that. And, you know, I teach um, sort of business coaching and different types of coaching, but when I talk about success in that business context is you need to be good at what you're doing, in my case, so good at coaching. Then you need to learn the business skills. So there's certain skills you need to skill up on. But then, as you know, there's that mindset piece. And that was the piece that needed the greatest amount of work. And I remember, and, you know, again, I made the decision, the poor decision not to get help as I transitioned that. You know, now I can figure this thing out myself, which is just, just dumbass. So, you know, I come up with my plan and I've got my whiteboard there and I'm coming up with my goals and I'm going for big, hairy, audacious goals. And I've like written that out. And as I'm getting closer to the deadline and I'm, I'm nowhere near that goal, I'm so far off. I start stressing out. I break out in this rash on my hand, like I'm so stressed. I'm like, Jesus. And then I'm like, I have the realization that I wrote those freaking numbers, you know, those zeros. And I could rub out a couple of zeros and suddenly... Yeah. So one of them was the idea that we, you know, overestimate what we can do in the short term and underestimate what we can do in the long term. Yeah, good. So that was probably one of my biggest lessons. I, had, I remember one of my first coaching clients and she had an online business to do with midwifery and, mm. um, and I was doing personal training with her because I'd done personal training as well. And she told me it takes about five to seven years to, you know, kick the straps in your business. And I'm like, no, I went and did a freaking course with um, Brendan Bouchard over in the States. And, you know, he went from zero to this in this period of time. <laughs> so I reckon I've got that sort of the model. I can do it in two yeah. years. 
Porsche yet. So <laughs> five to seven years later, I'm like, oh, okay, now, oh, yeah, this is about the time frame. So, yeah. you know, lots of, lots of lessons along the way. And I guess the yeah. thing that allows us to move through that and make it to the other end is really working on our mindset. And I'm a, a huge fan of, you know, daily rituals and morning rituals. And I've been doing the same morning rituals for 10 plus years. And uh, for me, they're the bedrock that I build everything on. Um, right. Yeah, they, they, don't get a, they don't get a day off. They're 365 days or 366 in a leap year. So can you give us an example of some of that morning ritual that you go through and what are some of the uh, affirmations or the self-talk that you use to keep yourself motivated? Yeah, fantastic. And one of the things studying neuroscience and studying sort of habit forming as well is realising if we need to use willpower in this sort of frontal lobe, frontal cortex of our brain, it actually consumes more energy. We want to make something a habit because then it's down sort of you know, base of our brain, higher density of neurons. So it's actually consuming less energy. So what I do with waking up in the morning is I string as many things, high return on investment activities mm. to that as possible. And I make those a habit. Great. So I sit up in bed, I twist and turn, I sort of lean forward, sort of straighten my spine. And I say mm -hmm. a couple of mantras as I'm there, I get up, I grab a, grab a glass of water with some apple cider vinegar and I drink that hydrating and also the alkaline nature of that apple cider vinegar. Um, you know, might sit here and sort of look out and sort of say good morning to the beautiful day. So I'm starting to set the intention of gratitude and appreciation. Mm. Do my bathroom thing, come back out, I do energization exercises and they're like loosely based there's a guy in the yoga space, you know, and I've been doing yoga for 20 plus years called Paramahansa Yogananda, who wrote Autobiography of a Yogi. So most yogis have heard the book. And he had these energization exercises. So I've yeah. sort of taken those and added to them. And, and they're about, you know, moving my spine, get energy flying through my body. I have mantras that I say as I'm doing that. And that's preparing myself. Then I go from there. And again, I'm just stringing all these things together. No break mm. in it. I walk into my office. I've got a chin-up bar. I do eight chin-ups every morning. And I do eight chin-ups because they're good for our physiology. But they're also good psychologically because there's not too many times I go to that chin-up bar and I think, awesome, I've got to do chin-ups this mm. morning. I'm like, here's the way to psychologically condition yourself to be able to do things that you don't feel like doing. Because mm. that's going to support me in, in every element of my mm. life. So I do those every day without fail. And then I like sit down on a cushion like I'm sitting down now and I meditate. And I've been meditating every day, you know, for the last 10 plus years. Do that meditation. Um, and then I'll normally get up and I'll do some physical training. And then I'll come back and I'll plan my day. And what I say is, everything is a lead up to me planning my day because mm. I want to know, this is the decision, what are the priorities for the day in order for me to have a successful day? And if I have a successful day, followed by a successful day, followed by a successful day, I've got a successful life. So Great. all of that is making sure I'm in the right physiological, psychological, emotional, mental state to be my most creative genius self to look at the big um, picture and put all the pieces together. Yeah. So I think that's one of the 
the keys for me to success is when you map out your day, what state are you in when you map it out? Mm. And don't just wing it, leave it to chance. It's like, what can I do, you know, systematically to actually level myself up so I'm in the peak state for that experience? Great. So how long does that morning routine take from the time that you get up to, say, the time you're sitting down to plan your day? How long are you giving yourself for that routine? Um, and here's the thing with routines is to make sure, you know, in military would say flexibility is a principle mm. of warfare. That routine needs to be flexible enough so it can expand and contract based on life happening around you, mm-hmm. which means I can travel and I might be doing a talk or seminar somewhere and I can travel and I just sort of compress that down to like a 15-minute show. Yeah. When I'm back home, it expands out to a two-hour show. Right. And I'm about, I need to do more work on myself than my clients so that I can show up leveled up for my clients because a lot of right. what I want to do is in that peak emotional state, those elevated emotional states, so I yeah. can hold space for that client. So, yeah, some mornings it can be two hours, but that's a, for me, that's pure investment. Great, great. So you plan out your day, and when you're planning out your day, are we talking about a task list, a to-do list, or are we talking a lot more strategic and a lot more uh <laughs> directive so so talk to that because what's the difference i think a lot of people would say they plan out their day but it's just a to-do list so how do yeah, you approach so, your day to make it productive and make it work for you yeah and i've listened to lots of different teachers and teachings on how that might map out and i do like brenda bashard like he is very strategic in how he does things so i sort of map it out and i have i have three goals so it's, I write down at the top of the page just a little affirmation and it might be something just, you know, I tap into the day and I feel, I feel this source energy moving through me to bring out my best. So I'm just setting intentions along the way. Mm. I have my three goals for the day and they're my three priorities. In some speak, it might be most important task. Then I have my sessions that I need to do. So they're booked in, you know, this conversation with you. I've got a coaching session this afternoon. They're immovable. They're essential. And then I look at, as I look at what I've got in those sessions, I revisit my priorities to see based on these things that I've locked in, have I actually got time to do these three things? And I might go, no, I actually don't have time. I've only got time for two. Okay, if I only got time for two, which are the two most important? So I do that process and then I come down to connect. Who do I need to connect with today? Because what tends to happen is once we bang our emails open we're sort of inundated with other people's priorities yeah Yeah. i want to know who i need to reach out for my priorities so i have that written there so you know when this stream of emails comes in that tide i'm actually there with a little bit of a plan about what i need to move forward sure and one of one of the things i want to add which is important was i used to write down sort of six or seven things that i'd aim to get done in the day and yeah. I'd never get seven done. So I'd get to the end of the day and I'd feel like a bit of a failure because I hadn't done the things I'd set, but I set that up myself. So then I said, I'm, I'm never going to have more than three key tasks. If I've got extra ones, I might be down the bottom of my page. And if I get these three done, then I can revisit those. Right. So that's the key for me. I, you know, 
for me, my teaching is, you know, there's no such thing as time management. It's about priority management. It's about really understanding what's my goal? You know, what am I aiming for? And what are the things that are going to take me towards that? Yeah. And everything else is, is a distraction. Like if I have that plan, I'm 80% steering in that direction. So how are you assessing your priorities for the day? Because I you obviously got competing priorities. You've got competing uh, goals and yep. uh, productivity that needs to you'd need to yep. stay on top of. And so what's the process that you're going through to align your priorities so that they're pulling in the same direction? So I just, and this is Monday morning. So every Monday morning I do a two-hour beach walk and I finish up and I go to a cafe and I have a meeting with Carl Massey, Inc. And I sit down in that meeting with self and I look at what I've got for the week. I even look at relationships. I look at every element of my life and I check in every Monday to make sure that's right. Then I get to taking that information, I put it into my weekly schedule. Then I come to my day and I look at what's my weekly schedule because my experience with my clients has been there's sometimes if we don't check in enough, we're three months down the track and we realise, what am I doing this thing for? I'm not actually mm. enjoying it. Mm. I don't want to have that happen. So I'm strategic about every week I need to check in. Even though I had a priority last week, is it still my priority? Mm. Is it still something I really want to be doing? Because there might have been something through between then and now which says, yeah, it's not really a priority. And I have this, you know, one of the yogic teachings is about, you know, non-attachment. I'm not attached to having done something, even if I've spent six months on it. If I get to the stage and it's no longer serving me, I'm just packing it up and, you know, putting it in mm. the recycle bin. Mm. So go, what's, what's the now priority? And I'd sort of bring then my life plasma into, okay, let's work on that thing. And let's let go of that thing. No longer serves. Yeah. So what you're really saying is that your Mondays you carve out as it's you time, it's self-reflection time. Absolutely. You don't let that get crowded out by anyone else or anything else because that's where the rest of your week really comes from. And you're able to assess where you're at personally, emotionally, relationally business absolutely yeah and this is this idea of self-leadership it's like you know i need to be you know really really um protective of that time so i might do my beach walk meet one of my best buddies who says you want to catch up for a coffee and i'm like i've got a meeting on and Mm. i can't miss this meeting so i can see you after that meeting but um, i'm busy nine till ten thirty you can't touch me yeah so this is you know sacrifice where i think is part of this self-leadership thing where we work out you know i need to lead myself first and i need to be Mm. really clear about which moving pieces have the biggest return on investment Mm. and i don't sort of you know play around with those things because some people might get caught up on yeah but you're so rigid like having this thing but i would say it's my rigidity of that it's me having these you know, pillar pieces in that allow so much yeah. more flexibility because I'm so much more efficient. Great, great. That's so good. I love that you call it a meeting with Carl Massey Inc. because it's mm-hmm. it really makes it a priority in your own head and helps you to say no to other people, which is so good. So what are some of the other immo- Im- immovable 
blocks in your week, your month that you mm. just don't negotiate on that help you to stay on track and stay in the right. Yeah. Frame. I mean, there's a, when we were in the military and I, I love this idea, we used to have like a Wednesday afternoon sport. Mm. So, you know, it's like school, you finish it like 1 p.m., on a Wednesday and Wednesday afternoon was always sport because they realised the importance of those bonding experience, that mm. physical activity experience and all that sort of thing. So rather than it being a waste of time, recognising that that break from work is actually beneficial for the big picture work. Sure. So I've integrated that in and I, and I on a Wednesday sort of finish at 12.31 mm. and and I dedicate that to Carl Massey afternoon. And I just, whatever I want to do in that afternoon, I carve out a few hours, three, four hours for myself. I've been in a relationship. We just had our anniversary yesterday, 13 years. Congratulations. And, you know, <laughs> thanks, buddy. And my partner, and like, just realizes that I need this me time. So yeah. part of me being the best me in that relationship, I need to work on me. Great. So, you know, I live in Bali. I, I go off and I get a massage. I go for lunch by myself. I just get our book out. It's mm. a lot of times it might be fiction, you know, sometimes non-fiction, but that's one of the pieces that I've decided is immovable. And that's only been in the last one to two years. Right. Talking relationship, you know, Sunday's quality time with my partner. So I don't book out any work against that mm. unless it's absolutely urgent unless it's cleared with my partner, unless I compensate and say, okay, I'll take out this chunk on a Sunday, but we'll make it up by putting this piece in. I'll shuggle, shuffle my day around there. So I'm always like up here, mm. you know, sort of seeing how these pieces fit together. And again, that's, um, you know, one of my favourite things with, one of my favourite teachings is about you know, decisions about consciousness, about, you know, how can I put myself in the right state to be making decisions? Because when I make decisions from a place of fear, I go tunnel visions, I'm hyper fixated, I've dropped down to my midbrain, I don't have perspective. Mm. So what can I do to put myself into the right state of mind, right state of being, right physiology to actually make my best decisions? And again, you know, we can talk on that decision-making process. Mm. Well, okay. Well, that's probably a good segue to let's get into that because I think this is really helpful, just helping to understand uh, these immovable blocks and you know, block scheduling is something that I've been using for a couple of years now and found it really beneficial for, you know, a busy week, not to get yourself overcrowded, but, you know, uh, like you scheduling in time for important uh relationships um, scheduling in time for yourself but I've really mm. taken away from this conversation that I need to schedule in more time for reflection on my priorities because that's probably something mm. I don't do you know I sit down and make a to-do list but I don't mm. have a, pri a priority for the week and so yeah. I'm more putting out spot fires every time it comes through and so that's that's really helpful I really like that yeah. so let's talk about decision making and how that impacts the way we move forward, or as you would say, being a co-creator uh, co in your destiny. Why is it important mm. to know how to make decisions well? Yeah. So, you know, again, I just, you know, highlight that idea. We want to be co-creators and the choices we make have a huge impact on determining our destiny. So I appreciate that and I appreciate within it, 
within myself and with my clients. So I wrote the book Decision Making Mastery over the course of 2020. And I usually write a book over a year, then sort of, you know, market it, plug it, talk about it, do things on it the next year, and then I might start writing another book. So that's the process. And the, you know, the most simple thing that came out of this one year of being in the deep dive on decision making was that I think the most important thing out of this whole book is the idea I need to be in the right physiological and emotional state before I make my decision. Mm. So therefore, the most important thing I can teach people is a timeout. And, you know, the idea that if I'm not in the right physiological state, if I'm not in the right emotional state, I call a timeout. I don't get pushed into making those decisions, mm. particularly the important ones. You know, the ones that I'm trying to decide which cafe to go to, is it Korean or Japanese? Like, mm. it doesn't really matter, not end of the world. But the ones that have got high consequences, I need to like, am I in the right physical state? Am I well rested? Am I hydrated? Do I have the fuel? Am I hungry? And I might sort of go, okay, I need a five-minute timeout. Mm. I need to drink a glass of water. I need to have a little snack, munch on an apple. I need to step outside, look at some greenery. I need to centre myself, ground myself, come back in. Um, because something I've talked about just recently, I was doing a podcast on it, was this idea of um, intellectual intelligence versus intuitive intelligence. Great. So part of connecting to intuitive intelligence too is like really grounding so that I can be aware of what's my body telling me, you know, what sensations are coming up, what emotions are coming up, where am I feeling things in my body, which might be, you know, feedback from my subconscious mind. So physically, I want to put myself in that right state and then psychologically, emotionally, mentally, I want to be, okay, am I in, am I in the right emotional state to have this conversation at the level I need to have it because of the consequences associated with this decision. So an example, even in the workplace might be, boss comes along and says, I need your decision on this. And you're like, whoa, just do a quick check-in. Hey boss, time out. I can give you a response to that, but it's gonna be a 60, 70%. Mm. Or you can give me 15 minutes and I'll freshen up and I'll come back and I'll give you 90% plus. Over, over to you, boss, what is it? And, you know, a, a good boss would say, yeah, okay, 15 minutes isn't going to make a, a difference in the overall scheme of things in most cases, unless it's a life or death situation. Most people don't work and operate in those environments. Step out, freshen up. Okay, now I've relaxed. I can actually get some more blood flow to prefrontal cortex of my brain. That allows me to have a broader perspective. Now I can see the broader perspective. I can tap into more creativity. Mm. I'm more likely to use the, the lens of curiosity as opposed to the lens of judgment. When we're tired, we judge things. You know, when we're more relaxed, open, we're more curious about things. So we can see how those pieces fit together. So I guess that's the, that's the most important thing I took out of this one year of, you know, looking at decision-making. Are you in the right physical or mental state to make the decision you need to make? Mm. Full stop. If you're not, time out. So good. So good. I love it. So you've gotten yourself physically and emotionally and mentally ready for the decision. Um, How do you avoid people pushing you into a decision or making the importance of the decision 
from their perspective your priority uh, i don't know if i articulate yeah no 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 that's you, you know what i'm saying it's like other people's yeah. priorities become your urgencies and they don't yeah. necessarily have to be so how do we avoid that process so this might be the part of sorry you just dropped out there carl i lost your voice that um, it's okay to call a timeout yeah. if in the relationship, you know, there's a conversation that needs to happen. So we might need to, so, you know, in that case again, and I'll just go over it again because I see what we had a bit of a distraction there. Yeah, the, maybe just start the from the beginning because uh, we dropped out for probably about 30 seconds. So um, okay, uh, how, how to avoid other people's priorities becoming our urgency. Perfect, perfect. So it might be there's a time where we need to have conversations with people to condition them to what the boundaries are to get yep. these results. So there might be times where you need to try it a few times or, you know, get buyership or, you know, ownership of that process hmm. with the other people in the team. The example I was using was, say, with my partner, I would say to her, hey, the same thing. Look, if you give me a little bit more time to freshen up, you're going to get a re better response in this. Mm. And if they get to experience that and they go, oh, yeah, it makes sense. So, again, it might be something that might take a little bit of time to do. It might be, you know, talking to the team around you and say, hey, I've got this thing I want to experiment with. I've been working with this coach or I listened to this guy yap on the other day. And he was saying it's so important to call a timeout if you've got a good decision or an important decision with high consequences you need to make sure you're in the right state because if, if you're in a stressed state, if you're in a fearful state or whatever, you don't have access to the frontal cortex of your brain, you don't have access to creativity, so you're going to end up with a subpar. You're probably going to end up with a decision based on the past when the past may not be the best decision in this moment. Right. In this moment, this is, you know, leads on to a topic we talked about before this conversation was a lot of times we use the formula of knowledge plus experience equals wisdom. Mm. You know, I, I used to teach the same thing. You know, if we have the knowledge, so I build up these skills, I have the experience and I've got wisdom. But if I'm in a stressed state, I'm just going to draw on my wisdom from the past, which may not be the right fit for this situation. What I need to do is I, that's potential wisdom. I need to bring consciousness good perspective, curiosity to this situation that's in front of me, I need to be able to cherry pick the pieces from my past, put them together and say, okay, for this situation, this is the best outcome. You know, this is yeah. the best solution. This is the best decision. So again, I think if we're not in this high state of consciousness, so that's what I say is wisdom plus consciousness. And consciousness is this, awareness of all the pieces awareness of our past experience awareness of our past knowledge and bringing that level of awareness that level of consciousness collected with that wisdom into this new situation hmm. and an example i might um, draw on is so we did we did the sydney olympic Games. so myself and our and the team that i work with did security for that then we went to salt lake city it was post september 11 so 
you know, heightened security measures. So we had to modify how we did our security for that. Then we go to Athens and Athens is a very different situation, circumstance. So if we try to put the same template onto Athens that we used Sydney or Salt Lake City, it would have failed. So we need to like have, okay, this is the general context, but um, curiosity, conscious awareness in this situation, how can I take this model and apply it to this particular thing? So again, that's why I think sometimes people try to smash in, you know, what they've used in the past to a current situation. Yeah. So the more that we can be fully present, the more we can like, you know, be in an elevated emotional state, high vibe physical state, the more we're going to be able to see, okay, this is how this thing best fits together. Mm. And then be able to make the best decision based on that, you know, helicopter view versus the in the weeds view. Mm. So how do you, okay, let's just say we're in a good physical, emotional state. You have a good uh, conscious view of the situation, but you're working with somebody that perhaps doesn't operate like that. And they are just adamant, no, you have to get it done now and I need your decision now. How do you navigate the, the other people that don't operate in such a well-aware state of mind and state yeah. of being? So it can be a work in progress and it might be, you know, this idea and I remember, you know, having a, my boss in, in Athens who said to us, look, if we come in and, we, and we're working with the Greek police then, and they were at a very different level of um, sophistication than, say, the police in, in Australia. And he said, look, if, if they make a 10% improvement on how they've done business in the past, that's a glowing success. So sometimes we measure it against what we think they need to be rather than yeah. incre incremental improvement. So it might be in that team context you know, we start like, you know, little by little introducing that boundary and pushing it a little bit. It might mm. be, just give us two minutes. I'm just going to duck outside, go to the bathroom and grab a drink of water. And that might be the first piece. So you sort of wedge, you know, no one's going to stop you going to the toilet. So that might be yeah. the first wedge. And then you start growing it by there. And you start like, I like the idea of telling people, look, let's just experiment. Like, you know, this isn't, I'm not telling you it must be done like this and this is the A way to do it. Mm. Here's an idea. You know, someone I'd listened to, it made sense to me at the time. I would like to see if it actually makes a difference. So if everyone's okay or open to it, you know, could we try this little thing out? Because someone says, you know, it's only going to be for the next seven days. That person who might be obstructional goes, oh, it's only seven days. I can humour him for, you know, this period of time. Mm. So that might be an entry way to get that there. Yeah. The other way is like do some formal training. Yeah, good. Like go to the boss and say, hey, this is a, a great idea. I've just you know, become aware of this concept. You know, how could we introduce it into the workplace? Great, great. That's so good. I, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm off the track a little bit, but I think I'm, I'm gelling with you there. But one of the ways that I have dealt with people who perhaps push their urgency onto me um, is I learned this when I was in the education space and I'd have, I had a role where a lot of different teachers would require information from me and everybody had a deadline that was yesterday. And mm -hmm. I very quick re quickly realized that everyone's urgency seems more urgent to them than it is to everybody else. 
And so just a simple little thing that I used to do was what's the latest possible date and time that I can get back to you on this? And they would say as soon as possible. Okay, yes, but give me a date. And then they'd go away and think about it and they'd come back and say, oh, not for four weeks. I'm like, great. I can work with four weeks. And very quickly you'd find out that there was way more lead in time than they were making out. And so you forced them to slow themselves down and it also took the pressure off yourself to to work through at the pace that was required for your priorities. So, yeah, I love that. That's such a great reminder. So once you've taken control of that uh, conscious, intentional way of working that doesn't get pushed into decision-making and you're not working under stress or duress, what's what's some of the next steps that you could take as a decision-maker to get the outcomes that you need? One of the things for me is obviously to make a, uh, I say obviously, that doesn't necessarily imply the obviousness of it. The quality of the pieces of information you're making decisions on. So in the military, it'd be the quality of the intelligence and there would be different level of, you know, quality of intelligence. This has been verified by five sources. This has been verified by one source. Hmm. So again, I think this is one of the key pieces to making good decisions is the quality of the moving pieces. If anything's an assumption, it needs to be turned into a fact or as close to a fact as possible. Hmm. So too many times we go into a decision-making process with a whole bunch of assumptions. And that might be um, in a relationship, an intimate relationship, that might be in a friendship, that might be in the workplace. All of those, we might be making assumptions and we base a decision on an assumption as soon as we're using non-facts assumptions for our decision-making, it's getting a little bit wobbly. So one of the keys is to turn assumptions as close to possible into facts. Now, that may require us having a conversation and a tough conversation with someone. Hey, I've got this impression that you think this thing is going to be like this or your interpretation of it is this. Can you just confirm or validate that for me? Like, am I just way off course or, you know, am I somewhat close to it? So that for me again, and, and you know, I was writing this over 2020 and again I was telling you early on, I sort of, I observed decision-making process over 2020 and it was, mm. you know, pretty appalling, um, some of the decision-making and the idea that, you know, one of the key things for us is discernment of the information. So we need to discern who's giving us the information and then we need to discern the validity of it. Part of, and I talk about in intellectual intelligence versus intuitive intelligence. I think we've gone so skew if mm. in intellectual intelligence and so down in intuitive intelligence that we're not good at intuiting whether someone's talking BS or if they're talking something that actually makes logical sense. So again, part of this decision-making process is gathering the facts. And part of that is intuiting, does this make sense? Mm. Is self-evident or am I just, you know, regurgitating some vomit so I'm puked up in my general direction? Mm. So again, that's how, you know, we need to be stable and we need to challenge this. And part of, you know, spin that around to this self-leadership, we need to trust the inner guru. And I think 
part of 2020 is challenging us to let go of our attachment to false gurus and idols and all of that and like come back in tap back in and like what what am i being told like yeah. what's my heart telling me what's my gut telling me mm. and tap back into these sensory things because again i think we've got too logical we've got too technological and we're sort mm. of doing too much of this stuff here so yes. you know we need to get back into that okay so I hear what you're saying, um, where we've elevated intellectual intelligence to a point where it um, it diminishes our intuition, and uh, we need to get back in touch with our intuition. It seems to me that there's a lot of conversation out in the public sphere that has less to do with fact and more to do with feeling, and intuition would say no this is wrong what they're saying just doesn't make sense but as long Mm. as it's got enough critical mass behind it as long as it's got a loud enough voice behind it it's accepted as fact even if it flies in the face of common sense Mm. and so it's almost like you're you're talking about a dichotomy here where your intuition is required to decipher what is being called fact but then sometimes the facts themselves have to be challenged against reality if you like and Mm. you know talk to me about that process of really what used to be called fiction is now being called fact and to Mm. challenge it is folly uh not to alliterate too much yeah uh, it's it seems like intuition and facts don't really play any part in what we're talking about now uh, yeah. Do you have any thoughts don't, on that? Yeah, don't, on that? don't get me started <laughs> on that. So, so one of the things for me, and this might lean back to the yogic teaching. So, mm. um, as well as doing yoga for twenty years, I was a co-owner in a yoga center for about five years. So, it's a big part of my understanding. Like, you know, I draw on all these different teachings. I mean, these yogis were using practices and principles over thousands of years, so mm. they've really got to refine and define. And what they realize, and they talk about these energy centers, these chakras, Mm. and now neuroscientists like, you know, Dr. Joe Dispenza is starting to go, yeah, actually there there are these, you know, central energy vortexes through the body, which we can measure with this equipment. Mm. But the yogis would say like the the lower three energy centers um, are about survival, emotional states. And once we get sort of to the fourth, which is our heart and above, then we're getting into elevated emotional states, and that's using Joe Dispenza terminology. So I can't intuit when I'm in fear because when I'm in fear, I'm, I'm only in survival. When I'm in survival, I can't see the big picture. When I'm in survival, I'm hyper-fixated on the thing that's in front of me to remove that pain, that immediate pain from me. Now, creativity is premise on the idea of seeing the whole picture. Mm. So, so much of, you know, work as a coach is is helping someone get perspective so again if the narrative causes someone to go into a fear state they go into survival what they end up doing is becoming more judgmental about what's right wrong good bad and all of that sort of stuff it's not until we go into an elevated emotional state that we can access this thing called curiosity Mm. and again i think it's one of the most powerful tools we have in our arsenal which is yeah, I heard him say that, but I'm going to get curious here and see whether it, does it match my, um, my own impression or interpretation of reality. 
Mm. Does it match what I'm seeing in my community? Does it match what I'm, you know, hearing in conversations with other people? So, you know, I look at the big picture and I put all of these pieces together. And that's the difference too, that idea of, you know, respond to a situation versus react to a situation. If we're reacting, we're in survival, we're in a fear state. Mm. And, you know, we're not going to be able to intuit. Like when we're in fear, like our intuition is out the window, we're just pain or pleasure, yeah. fight, flight, freeze, freak out, whatever. We need to get back into this place. And that's why I say it's so important to manage our emotional state yeah. before we go into this thing. So I don't want to step into even listening to a dialogue of someone talking on the screen unless I'm in the, the right state. Because yeah, yeah. I might sort of get triggered by something that someone says, I'm not in the right state. Mm. You know, I, I do a lot of work on myself and I'm pretty good at holding space and being less reactive. And But I might find I'm feeling a bit flat, so I need to just take a step back for a couple of days from the screen mm. just to like let everything settle. Then I'll come back and re-engage with that conversation. But again, it's this idea of taking ourselves out of fear and out of survival. That's not where we thrive. Mm. You know, that's not where we come up with our creative genius solutions. Like that doesn't work. So whatever we can do to take ourselves out of that state and into these elevated states. So good. Carl, you are helping me as we talk. I've just <laughs> had a couple of moments as you've been talking where questions I've been posing to myself for quite some time, trying to solve problems within my business. I'm going, okay, now I know what I need to be doing. And so I've just really thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. And I know our listeners are going to want to know more about what you do and uh, how they can access what you've written. So where do we go if we want to learn more about Carl Massey? Cool. Um, I want to share one more story, which sort of relates to what you Please. were saying there. So, so working at this yoga center for five years, quite successful, you know, but, you know, a couple of things in the management, different um, values to myself, and I'm all about making sure you're aligned with your values. Mm. So I was uncertain, do I stay, do I go, do I stay invested, do I? So what I do is I take myself up the east coast of Bali. I go to this place called Chandi Das, where I go to my favourite bungalow on the side of the water. I remove all distraction and I drop into, you know, the core of my being and I just want a yes or no answer. And when I'm in that state and I connect to, do I stay or do I go? It's a definitive go. Mm. I'm like, okay, that's the answer. Next question, do I stay invested or do I sell my shares? Drop in, time to go. You don't like being a part of something that you're not influencing. Mm. So that's so much a part of the decision-making process. The bigger decisions is being able to put ourselves into, you know, our genius zone connected with life source, whatever your belief is, like in the zone and make decisions from that place. Do you not make important life decisions, you know, when you're trying to sort of weave your way through your day. So I guess that's one of the last parting messages um, I would like yeah. to, to pass on to your, your listeners. I love it. So, so good, Carl. I really appreciate you sharing your wisdom with us. It's been great. Tell us about your book, and how so, we can get a hold of it. By Decision Making Mastery, it's available on Kindle and paperback, um, on Amazon. Um, 
carlmassey.com is my website. Go in there, reach out and contact me. I'm pretty shit at the social media thing. Like again, <laughs> I've made the decision in my life where I want the lifestyle where I'm not necessarily regularly on social media, mm. comparing myself to others, all that sort of hoo-ha. So I like deep conversations. I love working with people transitioning who are trying to decide that thing. And I realize it's an important decision. Mm. I could try and figure it out myself. I might just reach out, you know, part with a few bucks because that might be one of the best investments I make because likely I'll see things that they don't see and I'm not yeah. caught up in the weeds, the emotions and that sort of stuff. So I'll get the perspective. So that's one of the things I love to do. So if anyone's in that position, yeah. I'm more than happy to help you out. Definitely. So if you're in that position, go and uh, check out Carl's book and also get in touch with him. We're going to put uh, his contact details in the show notes uh, in the description so you can get in touch with him. And I think you're going to see a few changes around the Tarun Stevenson Leadership Podcast. And you can thank <laughs> Carl Massey for that one. So stay tuned as I announce those in the next little while. Carl, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Have a great uh, rest of your day and I look forward to doing it again soon. Thanks very much for the listeners for tuning in and thanks so much for the opportunity to um, share this with you. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you got a ton of value out of that episode. Don't forget to let us know what you thought in the comments. And if you have a topic you'd like us to cover next time, we'd love to hear from you. If you know anyone that would benefit from the content that we produce, please like and share this channel. And we look forward to having you next time on the Tarun Stevenson Leadership Channel.